1: Willkommen, Bienvenue, Welcome. No, this is not Cabaret. It's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world with Uli Baer. Do the champions of free speech today really represent the values they lay claim to? I'm joined today by Jason Stanley, who is the Jacob Jurovsky Professor of Philosophy at Yale University. He's an expert on the philosophy of language, epistemology, action theory, and early analytic philosophy, and the author of several books, including How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, How Propaganda Works, and Language in Context. Welcome, and I am very excited today to speak to Jason Stanley, who is a professor of philosophy at Yale University. He's actually the Jacob Urowski professor of philosophy and has written widely on language and politics and as a philosopher you've written books on how language works, language and context, also how propaganda works and you have two books coming out I see this year, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them and then the other book which may or may not be called Hustle, The Politics of Language, right? Great title. (laughs) So Jason, thank you so much for making time. And I would love to hear a little bit how you made this transition, let's say, from being a philosopher interested in language to having written books on propaganda and now a forthcoming book on how fascism works. I hope it's not a manual of how to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the concern is that by explaining how things work in a neutral way, you produce a manual.
1: Don't try this oh, okay. at home kind of book. You put that on the back as a sticker, don't try
0: <laughs> <laughs> So I think my interest initially in going into philosophy of language was as a child was because my father was a sociologist who taught the Habermas course in theory and would always ridicule the the thought at the dinner table that speech act theory could liberate us. So, so I, so okay. as part of my reaction to my father, yeah. I thought I was going to become a philosopher of language and demonstrate that speech act theory was the way forward. Uh, instead, uh, I, I think I discovered a discipline that was a little bit apolitical, although to be apolitical is itself a political choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then I went into epistemology, thinking that the issues, the political issues that concerned me, required. A background in epistemology as well. And I and found that very much with think, reflecting about some of the uh, debates about free speech. It's not just reflecting about language, it's also reflecting about epistemology, deliberation, reason. You have to, to think about free speech, the issue the philosophical issues surrounding free speech, you need to think about how knowledge is constructed, as well as how language informs deliberation. Right. So right. I always thought that the tools of analytic philosophy would be useful for reflecting about political deliberation. It just took me many years to feel comfortable enough in developing those tools and thinking about those tools and their limitations to start thinking about how to apply them.
1: Right. you can say something about analytic philosophy, how it thinks about itself as a discipline, does it? Analyze the way we are in the world the way we interact and make sense of the world It doesn't really give you a lot of normative things of what to do in the world, right? Or it doesn't give you really prescriptions of how to act
0: well I think analytic epistemology gives you a lot of prescriptions, but I think that I'm both critical and uh, Laudatory of my discipline. I'm critical in the sense that in reflecting for example about the current moment it doesn't help to follow the lines where you divide ethics and political philosophy from epistemology and philosophy of language and metaphysics. And I blame that not on analytic philosophy. I blame that on Kant. Okay. When he <laughs> separated theoretische philosophie from praktische philosophie. Okay. Uh, so most everything bad is due to Kant. So, uh, so, uh, A few so, good things, maybe? We'll get I'll to that? Okay. Things. So he's, he's making this division
1: between practical and theoretical, right? And it gives rise to essentially what today
0: looks like, at least in the academy, two disciplines. Absolutely. Yes. And German universities as well. Right. But that is not how you face – when you're reflecting about fascism, mm. you're reflecting about the current political moment, you know, you really need to think about the epistemological Mm-hmm. Uh, effects of political movements, and the politics of knowledge. Think about epistemic bubbles. Think about ideology. These are, I mean, epistemology, knowledge, belief, these are just as political as the good and the just. When we walled off ethics and political philosophy from epistemology and philosophy of language, we really did ourselves a disservice in thinking about politics. You can't go tell a Nazi or a fascist, boy, Kant would have disapproved of you. Right. Well,
1: actually, ironically, you bring that up. I mean, not ironically, but this is the conclusion of Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, where she actually brings back Kant to say in some ways... um, This man who has utter disregard for the truth or knowledge or makes sense of the world in completely inappropriate ways, scandalizes her as a philosopher in a way, scandalizes her as a person. And then she brings up Kant and says he actually uses Kant in the most pernicious and horrific way. And she actually is outraged that he calls himself a Kantian.
0: The duty, yes. The, the sort of like here is the duty, and we are just we're just following duty. That's this, right.
1: This kind of abstraction, pure abstraction, in a way, which for Ireland is devoid of context and devoid of sort of how actually certain actions carry have effects in the world.
0: Right. Although she's, I think, critical of abstract philosophy for that reason.
1: Several books you've done, Language and Context and How Propaganda Works. Is one of the books more a more philosophical book, you would say, and the other one more a political book? Or what you're trying to do is to say they are really intertwined. There's really not a way of separating them as cleanly into these disciplinary divisions, especially in our current moment.
0: I think that if you look at the history of philosophy, you see philosophers taking social injustice and political injustice as philosophical fodder as fodder for their theories. Okay. I mean, obviously Rousseau, right? But Hume as well. Right. I mean, Hume is reflecting about why people don't change their beliefs given evidence. Right. You know, recalcitrance of irrational belief. Right. He's reflecting about that about that in his epistemology. He's reflecting about that as well in his political philosophy. So uh, his first treatise in government. So first principles of government so the problem of ideology, Spinoza, mm-hmm. Hume, philosophers are using that as a reason to reflect on you know, certain problem issues in epistemology. So the idea that our context, our social and political context, can't provide reasons, doesn't provide reasons to reflect, doesn't provide mm-hmm. for philosophical theories— is a very contemporary view, in my view. I mean, some philosophers in the past have held it, but even Plato doesn't. I mean, Plato, it's all (laughs) about bringing the lessons back. Right, 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 right. Analytic philosophy did not begin this way. I mean, sure, Frege was like this, but think about the logical positivists. Mm -hmm. Logical positivists were deeply politically engaged. I mean, there's a document where the logical positivists we're trying to persuade the uh, Austrian Socialist De- Social Democratic Party to adopt physicalism as a party platform.
1: Right. <laughs> that's well. I don't know if that's going to happen in this current moment. <laughs> so philosophers are going to give a recommendation to the Democrats. It's not. It's not. <laughs> uh, I don't know. So you did this book on propaganda, and now you have a book coming out on how fascism in the last couple of years. Has do you think something has significantly changed? And I'm interested, especially also in the context with what's happened at universities, where at least the national media, the nation, has paid much more attention to some of these epistemological questions being worked out in universities.
0: Uh, well, I think that when you compare the U.S. situation to... Previous situations in historical past, say, Weimar Republic or something like that, there's a lot of differences that make direct comparison difficult. And one difference bears on your question about how much has changed. In the United States, so one thing I encounter when people critique me for using fascism to describe our current political moment, the fascist politics, is they say, well, Where's the violence? Where's the concentration camps, etc.? Now, first of all, it needs to be said that not all fascist politicians pushed for concentration camps. Mosley didn't in Britain. Uh, You know, Mussolini and Hitler are very different. But we've had mass incarceration in the United States, racialized mass incarceration for generations. Mm -hmm. Nine percent of the world's prison population is black American. And there's only 40 some million black Americans in the world. Mm -hmm. So we already have directed against one of our historically oppressed minorities, minority groups, a vicious campaign of fake news and sexual anxiety and all the different tropes that you find in fascist politics Mm -hmm. that have been directed against that group for generations by both political parties. Mm -hmm. So, Donald Trump walked into a situation that was already long in the making. And he just has to extend the tropes that have long been directed against black Americans to immigrants, to political dissidents, to those who do, to his opponents. But we already have set in place a concentration camp system.
1: Let me ask you something, How that? what you just said, how that works. How does that work in terms of propaganda or messaging when... There's a kind of sliding from one group to by association or inference or implication because some things we can always sort of point to one or two quotes or several or many quotes, but sort of is there a way to, in which language operates that you say one thing about a group and people know you're really meaning a bunch of other groups?
0: Well, I think the tricky thing that my colleague and I, David Bieber and I, are trying to work out in detail in our book, *Hustle: The Politics of Language*, is how it comes to be that when you make salient, vicious rhetoric against some members of a group, when right. you connect, as Khalil Mah- Gibran Muhammad calls it in his book *The Condemnation of Blackness*, when you connect criminality with race, when you write crime into race, how does that generalize to the whole group? Okay. So constantly this administration tells us, you know, we're only talking about the criminal immigrants. And how does that then generalize so that every immigrant becomes a criminal? Okay. So we see this time and time again. My grandmother, she wrote one of the first memoirs of the Holocaust, my family's from Berlin, and she left in 1939. And she, in each chapter of her book is a very, the Unforgotten, her 1957 book, is a very useful sort of guide to the 1930s, Hmm. the kind of slow moving way it happened. And she has one chapter where she talks about how the Jews in Berlin in her socioeconomic class weren't worried, weren't that worried in like 1937, because they were like, they're only targeting the criminal Jews. Right.
1: Or the Polish Jews or the Jews from the eastern parts of Europe, Russian, Polish, not, not assimilated Western.
0: Right, right. She talks about how a family member of hers was taken to Sachsenhausen for being a criminal. And then she discovered that he just had a traffic ticket. Okay. And so that's what's happening now. That slippage, that criminal starts with MS-13. Oh, look, they're raping, they're killers, Mm. they're importing drugs. And then it moves to, well, they're all criminals. Right. Because they all came over the border. right? And now we're moving to naturalized citizens. They're all criminals. They might have lied on their applications. Right. So when you begin by saying, okay, we're just going to look at the violent criminals in this group. Right. Then it spreads. And suddenly the whole group
1: is violent criminals. In your book, do you look at, so when this happens, this effect, is there a way to counter this? Or how do people actually correct it? Because then you have people on the other side saying that's not correct, or you're exaggerating, or you're you're generalizing
0: in the wrong way. So, is there a way to resist this in a way? See, one of the reasons it's taking so many years, I've been working for two years on the hustle of <laughs> politics of language books. Okay. And one yeah. of the reasons it's taking so long is because we want to make some headway on the question you ask. How do you resist? When I give talks now, and I talk about the rhetoric of this administration, and I point out that this rhetoric historically, invariably leads to normalization of terrible things. People say, oh, it's just talk. So it's gonna be crucial. This rhetoric has been going on for a long time. We forget in Germany, it took many years for terrible, the worst things to happen. Right. Before 1935, things were bad, but they weren't like they got later. So how do you stop the effects of the rhetoric? That's the question you're asking. It's a very difficult question. I wish I now had an answer or the inklings of an answer. As I said, right now, and I'm talking now more in this discussion about my book with David, we're looking more at like how the rhetoric leads to action and how the rhetoric enables action. Great work has been done on this by... Lynn Terrell in her 2012 paper, Genocidal Language Games, when she looks at wow. Rwanda in mm-hmm. detail right. and how over years the use of cockroach and snake to describe Tutsi, it was, it was years and then it became sort of instructions for action. And what we're in right now in the United States with immigration is we're in the sort of virus infestation rats
1: right. space. So you're taking this language seriously from a philosophical position and saying it's not a simplistic performance theory, but it has real effects. And the first effect, it, it paints everybody with one brush and it normalizes this kind of depiction for people who are not yet participating or are maybe even horrified by this language. So
0: yeah, norm- let's say the people
1: who are listening and saying, this is offensive, I find this objectionable, I can't believe this. But you're saying it still seeps into a kind of public in a in a way without people participating directly,
0: right? It absolutely does. My colleague Josh Nob has done some research on normality and what he's found is people's judgments about what's normal in the normative sense are deeply affected by their judgments by what they're exposed to statistically. So what people judge is normal in a democratic society is affected by what they statistically encounter as normal. Now, if, if that's right, what it means... I mean, you know, the thing about social psychology that's that's funny <laughs> is it tells us what we already know. Right, but, right.
1: That's alarming that we could get used to things and find them normal. What's also promising is you can get used to something that you don't know yet. So that's... Otherwise, we would be stuck either way. So in some ways, you could also become normalized into a better reality it doesn't have to go in one direction right so
0: (laughs) yeah you could be absolutely and one effect of the civil rights movement of course was to normalize us to a better reality although we have to remember that the civil rights movement then moves directly into mass incarceration and so there's more subtle and insidious ways of conveying the same trend of conveying the same ideology and making it uh, effective.
1: Well, it's interesting. Speaking to you, you, know, you teach at Yale University. You know, It's a august institution and that used to not admit women students and very few minorities. And then in the 60s, really recently, actually, they started admitting women and they started admitting really minority students in significant numbers, which are still very, very small. And then... You fast-forward 50 years, and these students are here now, and from this is what I'm quite interested in, what's happening in these universities, where the students are saying, is the new normal really accommodating us properly? Or is it still the old institution? We got accepted, but we're still having to defend our presence here all the time, or it's being challenged, or it's not quite working out. And so there the politics of language take on a very concrete sense, right? Because the controversies we've seen are often about people saying things that other people strongly disagree
0: with. Well, I think I'm not sure there's much generalization to be made across different campuses. I think in the first instance, when you look at the fall 2015 campus protests, they start at the University of Missouri, right? Right. I know those students, Concerned Students 1950. You should interview Storm Irvin. I mean, those are some tough students from East St. Louis, Yeah. you know, and what they're doing is they're bringing the issues of Black Lives Matter and Ferguson onto campus. Right. And the idea that these students are complaining are like, no, I mean, they're facing, they're in Missouri. Right. You know, right. What they're facing is not what kids at Reed College face or at Yale. Okay. So. It's an entirely different okay. situation. Okay. At, and at Yale, my students were thinking about Missouri and were thinking about Black Lives Matter, and they were thinking about how to bring those issues onto campus. So, uh, you know, when we generalize about student movements you know, across different issues, you know, we obscure very real differences, differences between campuses. I mean, when you lump Missouri in with Yale, on the one hand, you should, because both are affected by Black Lives Matter and Yale is affected by Missouri. Uh, On the other hand, what the University of Missouri students in Concerned Students 1950 faced and their backgrounds, their socioeconomic backgrounds, I mean, not to generalize about all the Yale students, but in general, the Missouri students are just a very different group and facing very different issues. so i think uh i think the and i think the fall 2015 student movement is connected to black lives matter in a way that you know i'm not sure that middlebury college is and also there's the politicization of what's going on on campus i mean the the uh you know since david horowitz we've had campuses targeted as bastions of liberalism right and that's part i write about this in how fascism works chapter three anti-intellectualism is about the attack on universities, the representation of student protests as mobs. Because in fascism, authority is key, is the key value. And so when you have young people rebelling against older people, that is that can then be politicized and and sort of made salient as a way to emphasize to people, isn't this horrible that uh, relations of authority are being challenged that's and that then strengthens the core value of fascism which is authoritarianism that's interesting <laughs> to go to this point of the
1: universities kind of as a, in some ways the university claims a certain authority over deciding what's true and what's correct and what's useful in being debated right and and So what do you think happens in these controversies, which I think also are very hard for people who are not in these universities to understand if you're not at Missouri or if you're not at Yale or at Amherst or at Reed College? You don't really know. You just see a news clip. It's two minutes. I think one of the news clips from Yale University was viewed a few million times on YouTube while you had thousands and thousands of other events that year that when nothing happened and no one watched anything from Yale. <laughs> and so right. there are many probably really good lectures that would never go made it to YouTube, but this one clip. So what is what is at stake if the university's role is
0: being challenged? Well what's happening is the university in moments where the politics is as it is is, the universities are going to be attacked because they're the last bastions of liberal values. And so if you think about the irony of free speech being attacked on, you know, the universities being attacked as being places where you don't have free speech. Well, in the rest of the United States, free speech is a fantasy. You know, private workplaces, you can get fired for any kind of speech, you know, from Google and James Damore to Anyone in any private workplace can be fired for free speech. The only place where you have anything like free speech is the universities. So, of course, you have to go after the universities. And then you go after the universities, you delegitimize them, because there are certain cultural spaces where there is not one party rule, (laughs) where it's not in the rest of the political domain is dominated by certain toxic liberal democracy requires Republicans and conservatives, and it requires people of all different stripes, but we have a certain kind of political extremism happening. First Can I go back to one thing? Sorry. The way the debate in the university
1: is framed is very complicated. There are people saying on the outside, here are these overly sensitive students, and they are really not tolerant of speech, and they just want to sort of censor or regulate or shut down some speakers. So they become sort of painted as they are against free speech. Then I think, and I just, I'm curious what you think of this, then I think you have the media, they have a professional self-interest, justifiably so, to defend freedom of the press. They get this a bit confused with freedom of speech and academic freedom, those are all different separate issues, but journalists and people in the media would reflexively say freedom of speech must be absolute and it's the greatest thing we have because they fear for themselves. They don't see the campus context. Mm-hmm. So the students now look like they're against free speech. And then you have a firebrand provocateur or some violent racist or full-on neo-Nazi in a, you know, khakis and a polo shirt now and no longer maybe with a robe coming to campus and saying, I am the free speech apostle. I defend the constitution of this country. And the students are saying, you're pretty much a fascist. So, so, so the yeah. lines are kind of drawn in strange ways.
0: Well, Streicher was a free speech martyr as well. Der Stürmer, when he ran afoul of the Weimar Republic rules, he became a free speech martyr. So this is it's before, not,
1: before the rise of the Nazis, really. Were, yeah, they, were there some yeah, regulation of speech, actually?
0: And, yes. So it's not unfamiliar. I mean, we have to look at the provocateurs, and we have to look to see, are they really representing the liberal values they claim to represent? <laughs> are these? On the other hand, we've got people like Charles Murray, who are giving dozens and dozens of talks at the leading universities and law schools in the world. And really, if you look at their CVs or what they've accomplished in academics, it makes no sense that Charles Murray, I mean, please invite me to Stanford and Berkeley and all those places next year and getting huge fees. I mean, Charles Murray is, I mean, Whatever, he's an academic, but he's certainly not in the top tier of... I don't understand why Charles Murray is getting massive amounts of money and being trot. I mean, I do understand. He's being trotted out as, oh, you can't say he's a provocateur. But obviously, he's not being invited to talk about his academic work because he's not doing cutting-edge academic work. Well, and so That's interesting. So- and
1: so why does it so become such a narrative that Charles Murray's right has to be defended at all costs and he must speak worse? Whereas- you know, Jason Stanley, I don't see you actually suing and getting the ACLU behind you because Stanford hasn't issued you an invitation or, you know, Oxford or in MIT. Yeah. So exactly. in some That's ways done. you don't have First Amendment rights to speak even on my campus, right? right. If I don't feel like inviting yeah. you because I didn't like your book on language, you're not getting invited.
0: Exactly. I should sue you.
1: Yes. <laughs> I think people are starting to pay attention. That's a bit odd that you get a First Amendment privilege if you are – a violent a really an extreme racist but if you're just a philosopher of language yeah. you can be excluded all day and you know right, exactly. first amendment
0: yeah
1: and so i'm interested in this argument around language and defending the extreme other position makes us very tolerant
0: i just generally do not understand why you know if something is a law you can only show it's a law by constantly challenging it. I mean, I don't have to jump off the roof to test the law of gravity. I mean, it's great. I mean, I, you know, the idea that these are people who care about free speech. I mean, the Trump administration is leading the charge on free speech on campus issues. They manifestly do not care about press freedom and the other liberal rights. So, So as someone
1: who's worked on language, so what do you do when Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos, they all say, we are defending free speech.
0: Right. So what's happened? is an excellent question, and it bears on exactly something I've been thinking a lot about lately, namely Mill's arguments in On Liberty. Mill's arguments in Chapter 2 of On Liberty abstract from the fact that language has social meaning. He writes as if, you know, I say something and all you pay attention to Are the what I refer to in the world. And unsurprisingly, because Mill's theory of reference is that the only part of meaning is reference. So uh, that's millionism about proper names. So Mill acts as if, you know, I say something like there's a lot of lazy people on welfare, and you just literally take the content of what I say. But actually, when I use the term welfare, when I say something like that, there's the social meaning of the words I use doesn't just mean like these particular programs i'm conveying things about poor people and in that case black people in america Uh, when the mayor of antwerp who's very on the far right nationalist flemish party talks about you know we have to save the enlightenment he's not just talking he's giving a message about islam (laughs) and so words have social meaning and mill never takes that into account And what the right wing is doing now is they're trying to appropriate the language of liberty. They're trying to appropriate words like free speech without any care at all about what they refer to. So free speech refers to something great, but it's going to get to a point where anyone who uses the expression free speech is going to be taken by a young person to be someone who is not in favor of the thing it refers to.
1: Right, right. It reminds me of Richard Wardy in Achieving Our Country, where he says, for he said, the conservatives appropriated the American flag, patriotism, the family, our nation, the national anthem. And he said, and the left or liberals, let all that go. So when I say family values, you think I'm thinking of a heterosexual family, father, mother, two children living behind a picket fence. When I say the American flag, you don't think now of protesting athletes, but you think of jets flying over a stadium and upholding the, the White House you know message. So why okay. does the left let go of this term? and I'm kind of interested that's my whole point in these podcasts is to give some nuance to free speech and say it is not owned by one side and it can't be used well, as a weapon in
0: this way. Right, as Angus Johnston reminds us in his work, the free speech movement. In the 60s vocabulary of free speech is owned by the left and the free speech movement in the 60s in berkeley was very unruly they shut down berkeley campus they, they were completely uncivil so now when you find these people going oh were these people on the right saying we're the inheritors of the free speech movement they're absolutely wrong those were incredibly uncivil protests they weren't like letting people speak They were shutting the campus down. That was the free speech. And and now we have several bills and several legislatures that would have
1: mandatory penalties for students who disrupt or interrupt. And there's a fine line between
0: disruption and interruption, any campus speakers. I mean, (laughs) occupying the protest. Basically, what they're trying to do via these bills is they're trying to illegalize protest. And of course, the universities are the source of political protest. And in political moments like this, it's very important to theorize about this moment, not in isolation. It's a terrible mistake to think about the campus politics in isolation from the national politics. The campus is being targeted by the far right and people of goodwill cannot let themselves fall into that trap. They cannot let themselves take, because of course what's happening in these bills is they're trying to cut down on the possibility of campus protests they're trying to train students to be obedient and when you see as i recently did people calling for these students to be punished at yale for protesting when the students those very students at yale were responsible for changing the name of calhoun college you know that's why we no longer have calhoun college because of those students and That's never discussed. Let me just
1: check. Is Yale still standing as an institution or has civilization ended now?
0: Uh, And (laughs) we had a nice conference in honor of Henry Kissinger. Okay, (laughs) I'm
1: just curious because I've heard from people that once you rename Calhoun College, it's a, quote, slippery slope, an absurd argument, and we will soon be renaming Washington, (laughs) D.C. That's actually, Uh, and that's also what our president said. He said, you know, where does it end if you start with the Robert E. Lee statue? What are you going to rename Washington?
0: I know nothing in Germany is named anything. They're just named after numbers things. Yeah, right. <laughs> because you started by renaming Adolf Hitlerstrasse <laughs> and Straße, and now there's only numbers left. <laughs> so, So in the institutions, why do universities actually have a hard
1: time connecting with this moment and saying, we have to stand up and defend against this way in which we are being framed?
0: You're brilliant. But, universities have lost, have done a terrible job with framing. I mean, I think the main problem is that the donors and the alumni get so affected by the rhetoric and by the out of context things and by some of the errors and method made by the students. I don't think the students should have focused. I mean, I I don't, the students used the Halloween email issue at Yale as a catalyst. I mean, those, those were students who had come to me a month before to complain about the fact that the philosophy, nobody had ever seen a Philosopher a black philosopher on a syllabus. Those were the issues they cared about But they used the wrong catalyst and then it was used against them, right? What happens is that the donor class and the alumni class has been completely manipulated by the media and They don't understand the situation. They don't understand that the out-of-context Things are not the the whole situation and then the university panics to please their donor class Also, this is in the background of something general, which is that you're in the United States you know, when you have young black protesters protesting older white people, it doesn't, or doing anything, seen misbehaving against older white people. I mean, look at the 1960s when political protest after political protest was represented as riots. Right. That's what we have here on the college campuses. You know, political protests are represented as mobs. Mobs, they use that term. It's interesting, and, so- and,
1: and it's and in some ways it seems to be what's interesting that – I've spoken to some students. The ones I've spoken to are incredibly thoughtful and actually want to find a way through this and say we have to come to a better place, but what is happening, we are being put in one category, and then conversation breaks down from the other side entirely. It's not. Says, That's
0: right, because anyone who calls other people mobs and calls for them to be expelled is not seeking civil discourse. How is it when you call people children gathering in mobs... You <laughs> no. know,
1: but it's also they are our students and trusted to us. So in some way, I think there's a second responsibility as a, as a teacher or an administrator or an educator in a university. If my students, if it's not working well, my obligation, I think, is first to listen.
0: Yes.
1: To see what is the, as you said, maybe the methods aren't always, you know, the wisest, but sort of say, what is actually not working? And wouldn't it be my, my obligation and my desire
0: to change something? Right, rather than just panicking about right, it. I mean, I, right. think, I think our administration handled various things well. It was a very difficult situation. But the fact is, going back to the content, I mean, the weird thing is all the ways of changing the topic. Like, right. we change the topic to the mistakes made in method. Same as in the 60s, when right. there were political protests against police brutality. They changed the topic from police brutality to the methods used oh, in the political protests. So they always do that to delegitimize the political protest. It's a method of deleg. like, look, there are riots. And it's like, wait, what what are they rioting about? Interesting. Yeah, right. it's bad to riot or whatever. It's bad to when things get out of control. But what's the topic? <laughs> or ha- are talking about the method and not the topic?
1: Or has there been a history of people trying to find other ways of addressing these concerns that have been futile? So in some ways, if they've been trying to use the proper political channels and they haven't worked, that rioting isn't the first choice, if it's even rioting, or actually even going into the street is not the first choice for people, maybe. There are other ways they tried and it didn't work.
0: That's to- right. To- I- you, you're yeah, I didn't mean to analogize. I didn't mean to suggest yeah. there's anything like riots or mobs <laughs> happening on college campuses. But, but, it, it but,
1: but it, it's just, been described as such. It's very important. You're right. No, it's absolutely been described yes. as such. Do go back to your second chapter in, in the book, it's coming out now on how fascism works and expertise. Can you say something about the role of scientists? Um, because it's very striking to me that generally, people teaching and working in the STEM fields and the sciences are, are not quite engaged with these debates. Although a lot of times there are sort of, these are people who would never invite anybody who has an obsolete theory because science sort of has a mechanism to expertise to exclude some things. But this administration, the political administration takes a very strong position with regard to science.
0: Yeah. So I think it's a great question and I think we're certainly seeing climate change science being attacked. And of course, if you've read Jane Meyer's dark money and Nancy McLean's democracy in chains, you're aware that a lot of the money being spent on conservative politics and universities, say by the Koch brothers ultimately comes from the motivation of delegitimizing climate science. Mm-hmm. So because these are there are many many billionaires whose wealth depends on the extractive industries and so that's been a long time coming uh we see those very same people investing in uh, hundreds of millions of dollars over the years hundreds of millions of dollars in universities and we have to look to see what they're investing in to see how they think this is paying off given that the ultimate motivation is climate science, to delegitimize climate science. So I think that, yes, we need scientists at the forefront, but too often universities are using this as an excuse not to defend the humanities. Too often universities are saying, oh, no, it's radical to defend science. Science is under attack. So we're going to focus on science for now. We won't defend the women's studies department, gender studies. Gender studies is under attack all over the world. But the deeper part is sort of you're
1: saying, so it's, let's say, if a university allocates more resources to science departments, if there is an erosion of respecting the truth and believing actually scientific results, there seems to be something missing that if universities are engaged in doing scientific research, but there's an administration that just basically calls into question science altogether, And doesn't have a national science advisor in the White House anymore. We used to have somebody who at least can talk to the president and administration about the scientific basis of certain decisions.
0: Well, yeah, universities have to. I mean, not to criticize universities for supporting science, STEM. They have to. I mean, they have to. and And they can't just support some sciences, the apolitical ones. They have to support the sciences that are under greatest attack. And huge amounts of funding has been removed from climate science well that's, and, I'm thinking
1: whether science in general, its claim to generate a truth is under attack, even a political not, thing
0: i mean i'm not sure that people care that much about certain areas of science. I mean it's true that under these conditions of voracious capitalism, where regulations are being removed, any kind of science that can lead to pharmaceutical results that pharmaceutical companies can sell is going to then be politicized, and people are going to seek funding. There's going to be more and more efforts under this administration, and also under previous administrations, to replace government funding by private industry funding that's going to erode legitimacy of science. But I think that the attack on truth is an attack primarily on history. Okay. Uh, on history, on anthropology, look at the Iraq war. I mean, we didn't have people telling us, reliable people telling the Pentagon and telling people what happens when you invade a country like that. Or if we did, they weren't listened to and heeded. to. Those are anthropologists. Those are cultural anthropologists, the very people most under attack in the culture wars. If you're going to invade places, you need to listen to cultural anthropologists because they will tell you what happens when you invade places. History is under attack because the mythic version of history that this administration wants to tell is in direct conflict with the facts. Corey Stewart, running for Virginia governor of the Senate, said yesterday that the Civil War was not about slavery. It was about states' rights. But of course, states' rights were the right to enslave people. So history is under attack. And I believe history can be scientific. But I think history, cultural anthropology, gender studies, women do have a perspective. (laughs) You know, these things are under the most political attack.
1: So you said you spent a lot of time in this forthcoming book, Hustle, with your colleague, David Beaver, to sort of think, how can this be changed? And how when someone says this is actually the history, is this the following or this never happened or this did happen? It's complicated whether it's the media's role to just correct it and print a correction every day and say, no, that is actually factually untrue.
0: When you do that, it reinforces the false message. Is that what happens? Well, it's a bit controversial right now. The data is a little bit more equivocal than it's sometimes represented as being. But in general, there was pretty strong data that if you start a story off by priming people with something fake and then you tell them it's false, they will remember the fake thing more than they'll remember that it's false. Oh, Okay, and since
1: the president has mastered Twitter ahead of everybody else, how do you actually counter that, do you think? He's not asking
0: the hardest questions, don't he? Well,
1: that's both your two books, and I'm interested that you're coming out with a book on the politics of language and a book how fascism works, because you're saying this is a serious central concern how language
0: works in fascism. Yes. In illiberal moments, we're always in an illiberal moment, but in more illiberal moments, language ceases to be a method by which we communicate information, because the kind of general trust between citizens breaks down. And so when conspiracy theories just dominate, as Arendt warned us in Origins, when conspiracy theories dominate, you know, they undermine basic trust, And then language becomes a method just by which to convey social meanings that you like. And so you just use the words, you know, free speech just means I'm on that team. It doesn't mean anything to do with free speech. So the question, I think, has to do with how do we return to a basic level of trust in each other? How do we reestablish the bonds of community? In your two books, do you address social media, digital media change,
1: anything about this? When Arendt was discussing the breakdown of trust in a society under totalitarianism, they didn't have access to digital media. It was the press
0: and then people talking. Right. We do discuss digital media. We discuss the rhetoric of Twitter and in my book with David Beaver, we discuss how Twitter enables you to bypass the central message of something and just convey sort of problematic social meanings. But I think so much of what we face is familiar from the past. And in my book, I talk about the black horror on the Rhine in the 1920s, when the Germans had an international propaganda campaign to spread panic about Senegalese soldiers occupying the Rhineland for the French. And supposedly raping good German women or having sex with good German women. 12,000 people met at Madison Square Garden to protest the Black Horror in the Rhine in the 1920s. So I think, you know, that was well before Twitter and well before Facebook. Lynching in the United States based on a complete fake news. So this is not new. I do think that some of the things on campus are the result of social media. I think some of the errors and method happen with social media, like the quickly spreading moral panics. And I do think social media poses uh, that all that said, I think social media does pose a threat in that privacy is gone. Mm -hmm. And when privacy is gone, I'm not sure you can have liberal democracy. People need to be able to make mistakes. They need to sort of like think things through in their own time to reflect, to entertain bad ideas, and then discard them, hopefully. But when social media is always there to capture out of context, or even in context, the mistakes humans make, well, we all make mistakes. But when that's forever imprinted on people's brains, well, that is a fundamental change in how humans interact. Right. And that's, I think, a threat. Liberal democracy needs privacy. Liberal democracy needs a zone of privacy. It needs a place for us to think through things back and forth. And when that's gone, I'm not sure we can
1: have And it's interesting what you're saying. It resonates with what Hannah Arendt said. She said, thinking, and it's thinking with others. And for her, deep relationships with friends and colleagues, either through letters or correspondence and conversation, was the way in which she was also able to formulate some things that she then would write. And the university is this space sometimes where you actually can be in a room and try out some things and you may not get it right
0: and you hear other people. That's right. And I have in my classes students who might be videotaping me when I give lectures. Right. I want to try things out. How can I try things out in a situation where there might be 20 Breitbart articles about me? Right, right, right. It's a bigger platform, but it's
1: not the same as actually working something out in this private space, which used to be the idea of the protection of free speech. It is the protection of a private sphere of conscience, of
0: something that is innate to us. Right, and it's not universities, it's social media that's breaking down the space of private inquiry. A lot of the right-wing outrage that was directed against professors, that is constantly directed against professors, is professors working things out on social media in the way they do in classrooms. Right and being caught out of context. Right, that's right, that's right. Uh, Jace, I want to thank you so much, and if you can do
1: me a favor and tell me again the two books that are coming out, so...
0: <laughs> so, on September 11th, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them, is coming out with Penguin Random House, and sometime in 2019... Hopefully, my academic book with Princeton University Press, Hustle, the Politics of Language, will be published.
1: Oh, fantastic. So that's really exciting. So maybe I'll have you back later on. And then how fascism works, I'm sure, will elicit a robust debate, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) So so, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. That was wonderful. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you. Okay.